Right, troops, welcome to the Untribal podcast, the show that gives you news content by regular people for regular people. We are joined today by an absolute stoter of a guest. We've got the leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats, Alex Natkin Cole Hamilton. How are you doing, Alex? You all right? I'm great, Ennis. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. So tell us about your story, Alex. Well, um, my journey into politics was quite a long one. I mean, there's no fast track in the Liberal Democrats. It's, uh, it's obviously quite difficult to get elected um, in our party, but, you know, I love my party. And uh, I guess the reason I'm a Lib Dem is the same reason I'm a Quaker. And um, that when I was 14, um, the first Gulf War happened and um, that really sort of radicalised my views on a whole range of things. And um, particularly the sort of state of global politics. And my mum suggested I go along to Quaker meeting and they really spoke my language. Now, I'm not particularly religious, but um, the values of social justice and conflict resolution and equality and um, eco-sustainability have really shaped my life. Um, and that coupled with 19 years as a youth worker, particularly working with um, looked after children, disabled children, children really at the hardest edge of society and lit a fire under me to, to want to make a difference. And that's why I started running for elected office. Cool. Um, and my first experience of watching yourself talk about political matters in debt, well, I mean, it's debatable that these are political matters, but you were part of the committee that was looking into Scottish government's mishandling of sexual harassment complaint, uh, complaints against Alex Salmond. That was probably, I mean, no, I, in fact, that was the biggest scandal in Scottish politics I've ever seen. I mean, I'm only 25, but... Uh, Nicola Sturgeon was accused of covering up. She admitted to mistakes. It cost the public 500 grand. Uh, but she was cleared of the allegations of lying to Parliament and then she was elected as First Minister shortly afterwards. So I think to a lot of people, they thought, you know, Alex bringing out this, Alex Salmon bringing out this new Alba party not long after. It looked a bit like a publicity stunt from him bursting back onto the scene. But what was your thoughts? And you, know, you were at the heart of it all. Was there any doubt that she was lying? Well, I mean... <laughs> just to unpack that there's quite a lot there the, um i think it's fair to say that i don't think she got off scot-free i think the committee found that she had misled parliament um and and i think there is empirical evidence to say that and um, the independent inquiry the ministerial code inquiry said that it was up to parliament to decide whether it had been misled so it was a bit of a fudge uh, i think as to whether she uh, but it gave her enough latitude to say that she she'd been cleared um on Alba, um, I think that Alex Salmond is a very bruised individual, very damaged ego, who is uh, desperately trying to rehabilitate his reputation. Um, I don't think he necessarily deserves that rehabilitation. I think that, um, uh, from what I understand, you know, he's will stop at nothing to try and clear his name, but it's clear that he has left a, a great deal of damage in his wake. Um, the Alba party... Uh, looked like it could be something um, and now you can see that after two percent in the Scottish election it's now drifted to one percent in the polls I don't think it's going anywhere fast in fact you know my party uh, if you told me that I would be leading a party that was seven times more popular than a party led by Alex Salmond five years ago I would have laughed in your face but that's where we are um, so I don't think he's going anywhere and I don't think he's coming back either and actually, he's probably done Nicola Sturgeon a favour because um, uh, until Alba was created, a lot of people defected to it. Um, there was an internecine civil war within the SNP, but he's effectively taken a lot of uh, awkward squad with him. Um, it doesn't mean that civil war has completely gone away from within the SNP, but it has done her a favour. Fair enough. Um, but I mean, sort of going back to 
the accusations towards Nicola Sturgeon. That's pretty wild. I mean, you know, I think there's a Twitter page that posts about weekly SNP scandals. <laughs> so there's obviously been a bit of beef around what happened there. And obviously, you've got a bit of baller down south. I think Pretty Patel broke ministerial codes. There was some allegation about uh, Boris outsourcing government contracts to his pals and that. I think we renovated his gaff not that long ago or something. I can't, I can't remember the details, but do you think we're living in a world now where politicians just get away with murder? Well, look, look at what happened last night in the House of Commons. I mean, the, the Conservative Party literally changed the rules so that they could uh, get their mate out of jail, not out of jail, but um, metaphorically, you know, their uh, Tory MP of long-standing um, was found to have egregiously breached um, code of conduct by lobbying, taking cash for access effectively. Um, and or that, I mean, that's what was alleged. I think the Sanders Commission found that was true. Um, and yet the Tory party, the, the Tory members of the House of Commons voted last night unanimously among them to give him um, a stay of execution, as it were, and actually change the rules so that he can get a right of appeal, that he doesn't have to face a 30-day suspension. And it stings. It utterly stings. And, you know, I can't say that um, any party in politics is without its uh, skeletons in its closets, um, without a history of scandal. Um, but I think that it is incumbent on those people who are in politics for the right reasons, you know, to make a difference, to do right by their communities, is on, incumbent on them, uh, on us, because I count myself in that number, to root that out, to challenge it, to, to fight it wherever we see it. And what do you think of the idea of politicians like Donald Trump saying, don't believe anything you hear, media outlets spread false information? Um, do you think that because we get so much information from social media now, and the fact that there's this phenomenon that, you know, there's so much disinformation out there, don't believe what you see, do you think politicians are actually less accountable now uh, with, and that can get away with more mistakes or indeed scandals as we're talking about? I think we're living in a very dangerous time in terms of information and where people get their information. And um, if you think that in the last 20 years, we've seen the stellar rise of social media and the use of social media. And what that means is that people can surround themselves in bubbles of their own creation. So you follow, you only follow journalists who speak your language, who say the things that you sort of believe. Um, you only follow people who, um, who believe what you believe. And so you create this echo chamber, which reinforces your values and reinforces your belief. Uh, it also gives you access very quickly uh, to a very shallow dive into information so that you can learn a very small amount of information about any particular issue in a heartbeat. But that means that um, people aren't necessarily going into arguments informed. And then when, when people present them with counter arguments, which are more researched, then people retrench, they get angry, they feel that they're being, it's a personal assault. You know, the, the, the number of people that see an attack on their political party of choice is actually a personal attack on them is going up. And that's a worrying thing because it, I think it chimes into this sort of sphere of identity politics. So we've got this confluence of things, the rise of social media, easy access to very light touch political information and identity politics all coming together at the same time. It's a heady mix, it's a toxic mix, it's led to Trump, it's led to Brexit, it's led to loads of other things as well, and it's a real worry. Fair enough. And, you know, someone that isn't a fan of the SNP might argue to make a mistake of that size, they must be tiring as a party. A sceptic might say they got away with it eh, the last election because of COVID, maybe people wanted to a stable leader in there who knows how to get the job done. 
how how do they keep getting elected? Well, I think that I mean they they are a movement around a very they're a very divided movement united around a very unifying cause, and that mission is independence. And I think that they persuaded you know that they've managed to keep the forty five percent of people who voted yes largely on the side. And um, they probably got um, a couple of percentage here or there from no voting remainers who think um, that believe the fallacy that Scotland's route back into the European Union lies through independence, and we can cover why that's not the case. Um, but but I think it's also um, that the opposition is in disarray. I, I mean, we are caught um, in a clash of nationalisms. So the Tories are still strong, are, are artificially strong in Scotland because they persuaded people that they have to vote Tory to stop an independence referendum. People would not choose to vote Conservative in this country, given everything that's happened at Westminster, but they persuaded them to do so based on that, that fallacy that you need to vote Tory to stop an independence referendum. And as such, we are caught between a clash of nationalisms, the, the, the Scottish nationalism of the SNP, of course, but the British Brexit nationalism of Boris Johnson's Conservative Party. We are a nation trapped between flags, between polit politicians who mythologize and pine for ancient nations that can't exist anymore. And, and for a while, that's the zero-sum game. That's the total choice in our democracy. Then everybody loses. And so my role as leader of the Lib Dems is trying to break through to, to try and change the narrative around that. But to answer your question in a very rambling way, I think also people are still voting Conservative, uh, sorry, um, SNP in this country because uh, Nicola Sturgeon was on their telly for a year, every lunchtime. She was speaking to people who would never have voted SNP and they thought, oh, wow, she's actually done a very good job. I think that's a, a false assessment of, of what's happened, but she did it with a solemn managerialism every lunchtime. Um, and, and I think she, she managed to secure herself another election victory as a result. Fair enough. Well, we'll, we'll come back to that uh, a little bit. Uh, what I wanted to focus on uh, just now is the, the environment, which is obviously a huge topic uh, just now with Prop 26 going on. Um, if I were to draw up a blueprint for us to save the world, my shoddy attempt would look something like, right, we need to get less cars off the roads. Um, we need to stop digging for oil and put up wind turbines and shit like that. I don't really know how it works, to be fair, but uh, get folk eating less meat because I've been reading that the process releases dangerous gases and stuff, which contributes to global warming. So, yeah, I mean, you're probably thinking, wow, this boy's on the money, signing us up for the Liberal Democrats. But before you do, what would the Liberal Democrats suggest that we do? Well, there's a range of things. It's a really good question because, um, the, I mean, the, the threat to the climate is existential. And we can see that even in Scotland, you know, um, the, when I was first elected, there was a rainstorm um, which flooded out several communities in my constituency. And I went to see Scottish Water about it. And they said, this is a one in 1,000 year rain event. It's not, not going to happen again. You don't need to worry. Well, that has happened four times since. And it just shows that we are getting climate change in Scotland. Now, we're getting off lightly. If it's just flooding we have to worry about, we're getting off lightly. We're not losing our country. We're not losing it to fire or floods or rising sea level. And um, so we need to act. We need to act now. There's several things I would do. And I've uh, laid out in the run up to COP26 a range of policies. Firstly, I think um, we do need to change the way we move around in this country. And um, I want to get people onto electric vehicles as fast as possible. That means starting with public sector vehicles. And um, if we can change over it within the next two years, all public sector vehicles to electrification, then it will mean the government have to invest in the EV charging network, which is one of the main, main reasons people don't 
invest in electric cars because they don't trust them to get them from A to B. And I also want to have government-backed entitlement where every person, every adult with a driving license in Scotland will get a government-funded rental of an electric vehicle for a weekend so you can take it for a spin, see how it goes, and, and maybe that will win you over. That's, that's about transport. Secondly, I want to tackle fast fashion. After transport and aviation, the single biggest source of carbon in our country is textile production. Um, and or in the world, it's textile production. Um, and Scots use... Um, 30% more, uh, like in terms of textiles, than anyone else on the continent. We we go into Primark, we buy a five pound hoodie, we'll wear it five times, and then we chuck it in the bin. And um, that is terribly bad for the environment. So I want to set up a fast fashion commission, look at a proper circular economy about the clothes that we wear, and 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 get people's mindset to change so that we're picking up curbside recycling of clothes rather than just chucking them in the bin. Um, another thing I want to do is on aviation, I think we should be um, increasing air passenger duty for people who take fly regularly on business um, and on long haul. Um, I think we should let, reflect that in the tax regime. Um, and there's a range of other things as well. I think, you know, we, we need to stop putting gas boilers into new homes now. There is no reason why we can't. We have the tech to stop that right now. But the, the government, the SNP Green Coalition, um, I've said they're not going to do it for the next two to three years. That's a nonsense. That needs to stop now. So there's a lot of things there. Sorry. Yeah, a lot of things, but no, a, a lot of important things that you've mentioned, to be fair. Um, I was going to ask you, what do you think about the royal family being present at COP26? You know, Prince, Prince Andrew pitching up at COP. He's probably went back to a giant palace in a private jet or something. He's probably using two rooms in that palace. I think it was a Scottish Liberal Democrats researcher that uncovered a few months ago that the Queen was secretly lobbying with Scottish ministers to on this like um, carbon emissions initiative, meaning that she was exempt from the laws. What do, can we be taken seriously when the royal family are pitching up at these events? Well, I don't think we can be taken seriously if it's Prince Andrew that's rocking up uh, events. I think I thought he'd retired from public life, and and the sooner he does, the better. Because frankly, I think that you know he is he is actually diminishing the royal family and the standing of the royal family. And um, no, I I think that, that there is an element of privilege attached to our royal our monarchy which uh, is unjustified. I think there are far too many hangers on. Um, that said, I am um, I support the continuance of the Queen. I think that she works very, very hard, and I actually think that had she made it to COP, um, that a lot of people, a lot more people, perhaps would have attended because I think she still has a, a global respect, a global recognition, um, and and yeah, I I would certainly support the uh, reforming of the monarchy. Absolutely, um, I'm much more in favour of a monarchy that they, like they have in the Netherlands. You know, the sort of bicycle monarchy they call. It. You can meet the Queen of uh, the Netherlands riding around on Rotterdam. Um, and, and they don't have all the palaces, they don't have all the, the private jets, they don't have all the hangers on, you know, they, it, it's, a, it's a constitutional function. And I, I think we should have reshape our monarchy in, in much that image. That's, I, I'd agree with that as well. Um, and I think in light of a lot of the progressive things that you've said today, Alex, I don't think we've got off to the best of starts the COP26. Yeah, the, the Conservatives saying we're going to reduce air passenger duty, the opposite of what you've just said, which means you can jet about the UK uh, for a cheaper price. Um, I, think, I think I was actually watching yourself on the telly when you 
uh, brought to light that the SNP voted for a third runway at Heathrow, meaning thousands of more flights are coming into Scotland. 75,000, yeah. 75,000 yeah, um, flights. And I mean, to be, to be fair to Scotland, we did, I think we won awards at COP, you know, we've been, the government do, they are committed to transitioning between the oil and gas industry to renewable energies. I think they're going to invest in railways. I think it's fair to say that the conversation in Scotland has been a little bit more forward thinking than down south. Uh, and we haven't seen the budget yet for the Scottish government, so I guess time will tell. But, you know, you're saying that we can't wait for change. So in the spirit of change now, Lorna Slater was on our first podcast. And she said that independence is surely, quote, our soonest and most realistic chance of change, as opposed to a political system where we have very little say. What would you say to those comments? Well, look at the words of Michael Matheson um, of just yesterday, saying that an independent Scotland would drill baby drill effectively. And, and they are still operating on a financial prospectus for an independent Scotland, which is entirely predicated on the um, exploration and exploitation of new oil fields. I mean, they've uh, uh, we've got Greenpeace criticizing the First Minister for prevaricating on the extraction of Camber, um, of the Camber oil field. The Greens then inexplicably attacking Greenpeace for attacking the First Minister for dithering on new oil extraction. This is a nonsense. So any suggestion that an independent Scotland would be a benefit, a, a benefit to global effects on climate change is fantasy. And that's because of the, the economic case of, or economic need to, to lean so heavily into oil. And the Greens know this. Actually, I mean, the, the Greens have a very different view. They, I think they would just rather go back to rather an agrarian subsistence kind of model of, of country, um, which is, again, another kind of fantasy. Um, but we would be alone. I mean, we would be uh, economically very disadvantaged, I mean, which be, uh, nations that are struggling economically um, do not prioritise the reduction of carbon emissions. And we would be struggling chronically financially. Why? Um, because immediately we would be outside of two unions. We would be outside of the um, European Union and the UK. And um, we would have a structural deficit that is currently being underwritten by the UK, which before the pandemic was 9%, which is now something like 24%. Everyone's got a big structural deficit because of COVID, but, but ours is bigger because we, we couldn't wash our own face in the first instance. I'm not doing Scotland down. I'm just talking about the reality that we actually have a dependency on our neighbours to the south. And actually, I think there's great things we can do together. And, and let's remember, you know, the Conservatives won't be in power forever. And actually, uh, I, I think we have collectively, through political and um, public will, moved that party to a space that they would inconceivably have been in in terms of environmental politics uh, before now but to be fair alex you, you know you're saying the conservatives won't be around forever but fact of the matter is you know you said it yourself we need to act now and we sound pretty doomed <laughs> you know i was watching debate night uh, on wednesday night i think your man uh, <laughs> uh, who's got massive credentials uh, for his environmental posts in government i think he was chairman of the conservative party for a while and even he said that Scotland were taking strides in the right direction and having the right conversation. So when I was hearing that, I sort of took hope from that. I was like, right, okay, at least one corner of the country is sort of having the right conversations. But, you know, you're saying that, you know, that this, um, that independence isn't a viable route. You've got the Tories down south that are, are not pulling their weight. We're doomed. That's pretty scary. 
We're not doomed. And I mean, I, I listen, I, I'm no fan of the Tory party and I will never defend them. I think they are, they're definitely holding us back in terms of approach to climate change. But look at what Patrick's, Patrick Harvey's central message was at COP26. Scotland needs to be independent. I'm sorry, but again, that is not the route to addressing Scotland's climate uh, emissions problem. Um, and, and actually, you know, independence will absorb all oxygen, all political oxygen will be sucked towards the independence project. Firstly, in the years running up to a referendum, but then if there's a yes vote, there will be years of complicated, messy divorce um, settlement that will not be around our approach to the climate emergency, but will be around to the, the separation of assets and liabilities on border arrangements, on whether there's a referendum to go back into Europe, even though they wouldn't have us. Um, but but all of this will get in the way of stuff we can be doing domestically now in Scotland. And, and actually, the Scottish government has missed its own climate targets. It's got nothing to do with UK government policy. It's just that the for the SNP talk is cheap. So, so it's all very well to say that this um, independence is a land of milk and honey, because you can dress it up to be whatever you want it to be. And, 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 and the SNP have got very good at making it whatever people want it to be. Um, for, for the people that vote for them, but it's not solving the problem and it won't solve the problem. So lastly on the environment, do you think we need to consume less and live simpler lives? You know, I think folk, I've heard folk on the radio moan about not being able to buy turkey for Christmas. They won't be able to buy loads of toys for their kids. Is that a bad thing necessarily? No, not at all. Uh, I mean, I think it's, we have we are living in a very fortunate time. I mean, uh, despite the problems that we face with COVID and, and climate change, you know, I don't think we have ever had a more prosperous existence. You know, people, you know, I would say our age, I'm probably a little bit older than you, Ines, but um, you know, uh, we we have never been more affluent. We have never had so many disposable things available through retail at our fingertips. And at the touch of a button, you can have anything delivered to your house within 48 hours. Um, and, and I think that we've probably lost sight of what matters and being mindful about things and about cherishing things and about, you know, buying things to last. Um, so, no, I, I think I don't think that's a bad thing at all. Fair enough. Well, your man, uh, Willie Rennie, um, who was uh, on our show, we released that podcast um, on, I can't remember the day we released it, but your man, uh, Willie Rennie, was saying after being asked, I sort of I sort of snookered them with a question. I said, "Would they rather an independent Scotland led by Liberal Democrats or a Conservative-led Union?" And he, well, to be fair to him, he rejected the question. But he said, "Even if every single politician in Scotland was a Liberal Democrat and an independent nation, I still wouldn't vote for it. Even if it's in my narrow interest, it's not in the interest of the country." So that's very unselfish by Willie. He talked about you know the demographics being a difficult uh, challenge. I want to know, as on a more personal level, Alex. What is the crux of the issue here? Firstly, do you agree with them? And secondly, in your own personal opinion, what is stopping that being a good idea? So I do agree with him. I think um, short-term political gain is, is always a seductive um, thing, but it's also a fallacy. I mean, yeah, we wouldn't have a, a Liberal Democrat government in Scotland forever, um, but nor would we have a Conservative-led union forever. So I think you can't make a 300-year decision based on a four-year political cycle or a five-year political cycle. Um, so I absolutely agree with him. What was your second question, sorry? And so just on a more personal level, 
what is the sort of crux? What is the main thing that's stopping you thinking that political and economic decision making, you know, being more localised in terms of being made in the Scottish Parliament? What's stopping you on a personal level thinking that's a good idea? Well, would you tell me what political and economic decision making isn't happening here that you would like to happen here? Well, I'm, I'm more asking yourself to be, to be fair, Alex. I mean, well, I, I mean, people say that, but but actually, you know, the devolution settlement is the most powerful in the world. I mean, we have. I mean, are, are there other powers we could have? Yes, possibly. I mean, I think I'm looking quite closely at drugs powers, and and I wouldn't have a problem if. You know, global experts said that Scotland needed drugs powers to deal with the drug death emergency, which is a particularly Scottish problem. I wouldn't have a problem with that. But but I don't understand what we don't have that we're still missing or what, I mean, the SNP are very good at telling us what Westminster is doing to us, but a lot of it's made up. I mean, a lot of it's just, or not important. Um, so I, I, I come at this from a perspective as to, to Brexit, for example. You know, Brexit really broke my heart. On the, on the day that I gave my first speech, um, in the Scottish Parliament. That fell on a particular anniversary for my family. On that day, 100 years previously, uh, my great uncle, a private out of the first Canadian mounted rifles out of Saskatchewan, was killed along with 80% of his battalion on the first day of the Battle of Montserrat. A generation later, his um, sacrifice was matched by two of my grandfather's four siblings, again in world, uh, European battlefields. And, and I think a measure of the success of the European project that I am the only generation in recorded history of my entire family to ever to never have to contemplate war with Europe. That, that's why I'm a European. But the same goes for Britain as well. Is that I I am the product of this union. I am born to a Welsh father. I have a Scottish wife. I was born in England. So I just don't get it. When people say the most important thing is a border on a map or a flag in the air, I just don't get it. I'm not wired that way. I believe that you solve problems when you come together with your neighbours, when you form alliances and unions with them. And I will fight the rest of my life to find to convince the rest of the British people that our better future would lie with Europe. Um, but I'm not going to junk one union I care about just because I've lost another union I care about. Fair enough. Well, I mean, going back to the, the power thing, you asked me what I uh, think uh, powers I think should be in the Scottish Parliament. I'll, I'll, re, I'll rephrase the question because uh, uh, Willie was uh, talking about having as equal say across the islands as possible um, with not having uh, Westminster having the final say necessarily. So my idea of that would kind of be like a, a devolution max uh, you know you were talking about having drugs uh, policies being taken in Scotland so um, and my question to you is what what powers would you keep at Westminster and and why so um there are several I think which are I think well rehearsed and um, I think um pensions um, I think we have been working in a in an island together um for many generations people moved and relocated around there, I think it, it is too complicated. And in fact, not in anybody's interest um, to disaggregate pensions, because actually, if you consider how pensions are used, you know, the, the, the more money in that pot, the better for everybody, because the, the bigger return on investment. Um, I think the same goes for uh, working practices and labor laws. I think that, you know, if um, we have working standards uh, for companies that work across the island, uh, of Great Britain, then, you know, the way workers are treated um, in one part of the country should be exactly the same way they're treated in another. In the same way, um, any sort of uh, kind of business levy like that, well, the, those working practices are absolutely key. Defence, we are an, a small island nation. 
Uh, it makes absolute sense for us to share, pool and share resources in terms of defence. And similarly, um, international missions, I think um, diplomacy, foreign affairs, it makes sense that, that we speak as, as one community, because actually we have so much more in common. We are we have the same culture. We It's in our DNA. We speak the same language. We have the same, um, largely the same worldview, even though we may have not get the government we always vote for. We do have the same worldview um, across um, across these islands. And, and, and so I think, you know, all of those make absolute sense to keep doing together. Fair enough. Well, listen, we're, we're coming to an end, Alex. So I wanted to thank you for coming to the show. Before you go, we'll have, we'll have a wee bit of fun. Um, I was going to ask you, who's, who's at your dinner table? Five people. Who's at your dinner table? Oh, wow. And do they have to be alive or are they alive or dead? I'll, I'll, I'll allow either. Okay. Um, so I would go with um, Obama. I think he'd be pretty cool. I really like American politics. So I'll take two American politicians. So I'll say um, Barack Obama and John F. Kennedy. Oh, sorry, Bobby Kennedy. Actually, I'm more a Bobby fan than a John F. Kennedy fan. Um, then who else? I would have... Actually, I'll go for a third. I like, I'm quite, quite interested by AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, so I would, I would have her. Um, I would perhaps have, uh, who else? Oh, is it really five people. I'm having, at the moment they're politicians, but I think, um, yeah, Amdati Roy, she's an author. I, I think she's really good. Um, and so that are two women, two men, and who's uh, and my wife Jill because she's my best mate and she's always good chat. Oh, that's adorable, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so a less adorable question: What's the most steaming you've ever been? Most steaming I've ever been. Oh man, um, probably at a Liberal Democrat Party conference at three o'clock in the morning, singing uh, weirdly South American socialist anthems. But yeah, that was probably right. Fair enough. Um, if you could slap one politician in the face and they wouldn't know it was you and it wouldn't hurt them too badly, who would it be? So I'm a Quaker, which means that I'm completely rejecting violence of all kinds. But you've asked me a question and in good fun, I'll answer it. Donald Trump, no question. Fair enough. Uh, well, on that note, I, I think we'll leave it at that. Listen, it was a pleasure having you on, Alex. Is there anything you want to say to our listeners before you go? No, it's been great to be here, Ness. I hope you'll have me back sometime and good luck with the podcast. Thank you very much, Alex. Take care. Bye.